This episode is brought to you by the AIA Film Challenge. Let architecture inspire your next short for a chance to win $5,000 and a screening at the Architecture and Design Film Festival in New York. The fourth annual AIA Film Challenge invites filmmakers to team with architects and share stories of architects and civic leaders designing a better future for our communities. Register today at AIAFilmChallenge.org. That's AIAFilmChallenge.org. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. And I'm John Fusco. It's August 9th, 2018, and on this week's show, the new superheroes dominating this summer's box office, how to polish your script, a preview of fall festival season, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello, everybody, from a hot but cheery downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. We're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So while it's frighteningly scary to think about, uh, next month brings the fall season. I mean, late next month, like September 21st or 22nd. So we still have a few weeks of summer, uh, which the fall brings a figurative and actually literal chill up my spine. Uh, That's right. We'll start with this week's podcast with a weather prognostication. In the fall, it tends to get cold, especially around here in New York. Um, That is all. Uh, that's the news. No, uh, the fall also brings some more festival news, which is always good. After the announcing of the film screening in this year's Toronto International Film Festival was made two weeks ago, the next prominent chip to fall on the autumn film award season calendar was the Film Society of Lincoln Center's New York Film Festival, which is now in its 56th year. Having already announced its opening night selection, which is from the Lobster director Yorgos Lanthimos, this is called The Favorite, its centerpiece selection, which is Alfonso Caron's Roma, and closing night, which is Julian Schnabel's At Eternity's Gate, starring Willem Dafoe as Vincent Van Gogh selections, this week the New York Film Festival announced its entire main slate, and it features 30 films hailing from 22 different countries. Can I just ask real quick, is, sure. um, is Roma, isn't Roma a VR project? Um, no. I don't, I don't think so. Oh, I really mm-hmm. thought that was like his big VR project that, that they've been touting all year. Interesting. I guess he he definitely did one. I remember Angelio, uh, Alejandro Gonzalo, who did, was it Carne? Oh, yeah. Right? Am I getting my favorite Mexican directors mixed Maybe. up? Maybe. Yeah, the Three Amigos. So. Yeah, I remember that one. Um, Roma had a teaser come out a few weeks ago that, virtually showed nothing at all <laughs> yeah. except a t- like a shower and tiles. So I don't think it's a VR piece. Mm, all Sounds right. great. Imagine that VR. Never mind. <laughs> uh, of most interest to our listeners is probably uh, news of the latest Coen Brothers Western, which is which is actually interesting about this year's New York Film Festival. There are so far zero world premieres, uh, which is very, very uncommon. Last year, the festival opened with Last Flags Flying and closed with Wonder Wheel, directed by somebody, Um, and those were world premieres, but not this year. Uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is the new Coen Brothers film, which was originally supposed to be a series, but has since been made into one long series of vignettes, I believe. Uh, That will be premiering at Toronto first. Monrovia, Indiana, which is the latest, and it's at least six-hour-long documentary from the 88-year-old Frederick Wiseman. This is his 10th appearance at the festival. The Sundance hit Private Life from Tamara Jenkins, and the Toronto premiering If Beale Street Could Talk by Barry Jenkins. There's no connection in the Jenkins family, uh, but Richard Jenkins will probably be in attendance. 
to <laughs> not to mention new films from Alex Ross Perry, Her Smell, which is also premiering at Toronto. Uh, new films. It's from, about me. Yeah, well. well <laughs> <laughs> it may be. Is it a comedy, a drama, a horror film? It depends on the scratch and that's, sniff. That's one reason why I'm looking for, forward to the fall is because then we won't just have that smell sort of wafting throughout the booth all the mm. time. In the, you know. This is true. Yeah. It is, you know, I don't, and it stars Elizabeth Moss, so I assume it's her <laughs> smell. Uh, it's premiering at Toronto as well. A uh, new film from Paolo Palowski, who did Ida, uh, Jean-Luc Godard, and Paul Dano, whose wildlife is, was at Sundance and is coming out later this fall as well. So a lot of North American and U.S. premieres, but no world premieres at this festival, and very, very few women. I know there's Claire Denise in there. I believe Alice, I'll uh, butcher her name, Rush Hour is in there as well. We but had the, her on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. So she's also in the festival this year, but very, very small uh, female representation in the main slate. A favorite at Lincoln Center. They had her movie spotlighted a, a few years ago, and Emily uh, interviewed her. Mm, yeah. When uh, when does the favorite premiere? Did I did I miss that one? So that is also going to be in. Uh, I believe that's Venice. Yeah, I think yeah. Venice. It's, yeah. It's Venice, and then Toronto happens like a week or two later, and then you go right into the New York Film Festival. So I believe New York has the U.S. premiere, but I think it's playing Venice for the world, and then Toronto for North America, and it's such a political game in a way. Yeah. Uh, but it's going to be opening then later in the fall, I believe, in November. I'm so excited for that movie. I think that was on, we made our most anticipated list at the beginning of the year, and that was on mine. Um, and it's good that it's uh, having its U.S. premiere, at least, at New York Film Festival. In our town. I yeah. love well, New York Film Festival. One of my great experiences was seeing The Lobster at the New York Film Festival. I did, too. I and, saw that. I, and Alice we, Tully? Yeah. Right, yeah. I, so we were with, probably at the same screening. Yeah, probably. Uh, and just that scene with the toaster and... John C. Riley's hand or whatever. Yeah. Like, I, I was just laughing so loud. And it's funny seeing it with that kind of audience because some are Film Society subscribers, so they're a little bit uh, wiser. More conservative, maybe? Elderly. Uh, yeah, a little bit yes. older. Uh, Lots seen, of old people. Sort of Antichrist at the New York Film Festival and had like a walkout halfway through for so many people. Uh, so it's a different experience, but I love that venue, and it's always kind of a, a great place to see movies. Yeah, a great place to walk around during the fall, too, the Upper West Side. Oh, yeah. It is really beautiful. And it's an interesting point you made, Eric, about the premieres. We've talked on the show because we always cover New York Film Festival and we've talked about how it's not really known for premieres. It's more like, as you suggested, kind of an Oscars, early Oscars showcase. But there's usually some premieres. So I am surprised to hear that. Yeah, that was always also like a start of more awards, like previous opening nights were world premieres of Captain Phillips, Gone Girl, 13th was their first doc to open the festival. Right. Yeah, I Uh, wrote about that. Yeah. So that was uh, The Walk. Remember that Robert Zemeckis movie? Um, You know, so there were always big movies that studios would pay to have opening night parties and stuff like that. But they're going in a more, I guess, uh, artistic-driven direction. Who knows? Well, it sure looks like a good lineup regardless. Now, we are not in fall yet, so I'm going to reel us back to summer because, you know, it's my job. Um, And this next story is the kind that I absolutely love. You heard us talking about how Mission Impossible opened to lower box office returns than expected, but that doesn't mean that all is lost for theatrical income this summer. It's just that there are some new superheroes in town. They happen to include a petite lady judge, a very kindly neighbor, and three guys who look an awful lot alike. That's always the Avengers. <laughs> exactly. I hope they uh, remake Three Identical Strangers with Tom Cruise as every one of the brothers, even though they're like it's young, I guess. funny you said that because you anticipated my my little news there. But let me let me. Is it happening? Let me get to the point. The <laughs> Can point I see it on is... IMAX? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Penelope Cruz is going to be it. 
The point is that this summer's new blockbuster is, wait for it, the Dockbuster. Yep, you heard it here first, folks. Last week, Morgan Neville's <laughs> Won't You Be My Neighbor about Mr. Rogers passed the $20 million box office mark, making it the highest grossing biographical documentary film ever. And another biographical doc, My Homegirl Julie Cohen and Betsy West's RBG, has broken $13 million. And as of Monday, the film we were just talking about, Three Identical Strangers, has made over $8 million in its first six weeks of limited release. And to John's point, by the way, Three Identical Strangers director Tim Wordle has said that a narrative feature version of his doc is currently in development. So it'll be interesting to see, first of all, if Tom Cruise stars as all three of the strangers and also if it turns out to be as popular as the doc and sort of starts a new trend of docs becoming narratives. Um, I haven't seen Three Identical Strangers yet, but the reviews are just off the charts. And I understand that part of what makes it so remarkable is that it's true. So... I don't know. I don't know how the narrative version yeah. will do. That but. is a trend. Like I mentioned, Robert Zemeckis, uh, this Christmas, the Marwin Call narrative film is coming out. That's right. Based on that doc from about four or five years ago. Yeah, and there's a Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, narrative bi- biopic coming out. I, I actually think Jones, yeah. when we were talking about uh, trends at Sundance last year, I think one of the things that I pointed out was you can always see kind of what's on the forefront in film if you look at what docs are playing at Sundance, and then the next year you're going to see a narrative somewhat loosely based off of like one of those docs. At this least. week's weekly words of wisdom come from John Fusco. Anyway, according to an editorial in Rotten Tomatoes, these films are driving the best box office year for documentaries since 2006 when An Inconvenient Truth and March of the Penguins came out. Many film publications and industry folks, ourselves included, are pondering on why docs are blowing up right now. And Rotten Tomatoes quotes Michael Renov, the Haskell Wexler chair in documentary at USC, who guesses that these particular films offer kind of counter-programming for our lives. Specifically, he says, quote, their success tells us something about the world we live in today. Mean-spirited and uncivil behavior is so prevalent in our society that I think audiences find films that come at issues with a different perspective to be refreshing. Both Fred Rogers and Ruth Bader Ginsburg showed a compulsive commitment to do the right thing and to their work and vision, and I think that's resonating with audiences. So whatever the cause, I, of course, find it something to celebrate. It's worth noting that, as John kind of hinted at, all three of these movies were acquired at Sundance earlier this year, and as the same uh, Rotten Tomatoes article points out, Given the subsequent success of those movies, you can expect studio acquisition executives to join their indie brethren in pursuit of the hottest documentaries there and on the festival circuit next year. Variety adds a nugget from box office analyst Jeff Bach, who says, Don't be surprised to see a Lionsgate or Paramount documentary released on wide scale as counter-programming next summer. If they can make $10 million on a $1 million film for studios that are struggling, what do they have to lose? So, my words are, take heart, doc filmmakers, and get to work. I like that phrase, Doc Busters. I feel like you should trademark that. You know, it, I, I thought at first that it was like uh, someone that goes around and sues people for medical malfeasance or something. But <laughs> I, I, I like that term, Doc Busters. Maybe it should be our next podcast. About Doc Busters? Yeah, about oh. Docs. Doc yeah. Busters. Okay, like Monday. You're on it. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it right now. Uh, and also, we have some kind of breaking news. Uh, we don't have a breaking news sound, but it would be a No Film School siren. I'm or, waiting. Or you guys got to send me these <laughs> sound effects. <laughs> like well, a breaking plate? Yeah, a breaking plate. Yeah, like it just broke. It just broke. Uh, as reported by Variety, right before we went into the recording booth, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, who run the Oscars, is making some changes to the award ceremony. 
Here we go. These are some quick little uh, changes coming up. Future broadcasts will be three hours long, and that's like maximum. So three hours, no more four, four and a half hour broadcasts, and we'll include a new category that is designed around achievement in popular film. A little vague at the moment. Uh, and also the AMPAS also set an earlier air date for the 2020 telecast, which will be held on February 9th. So that's cutting campaigning and award season by at least a month. To accommodate a three-hour ceremony, the Academy will present select categories live in the Dolby Theater and during commercial breaks. Winning moments will be edited and later aired during the broadcast. Ugh. The 2018 award show, which clocked in at almost four hours, was the least watched Oscars to date. Though it pulled in 26.5 million viewers, the ratings were down 19% compared to the previous year. Dang. Yeah, so this, again, just was broken a couple of, like an hour or two ago. First impressions were that having a shorter window, I think, for campaigning is actually pretty good to have it be done with award season by the first or second week of February. Nominations will probably now be announced before Sundance. And I, and I do think a three-hour broadcast cap is is pretty great. Uh, the idea of below-the-line talent kind of getting the shaft by being given their Oscars during commercial breaks uh, is not probably going to fly too well with, with the community. Yeah, and the popular films category is an interesting development um, that you know, like they, the Academy has expanded um, the amount of nominations for Best Picture to 10 um, a couple years ago, I guess. And that was like in an effort to include more popular movies uh, like Avatar, probably just to get more publicity for those movies, get more butts and seats. But now, I don't know, are they going to keep it 10? And then like what defines a popular movie? Yeah, like, I, don't, you know? I wonder, I'm sure they're still coming up with the criteria. Um, and is that going to be something that if you're eligible for that, you're not eligible for Best Picture or any other categories? Or it almost yeah. sounds like a... Yeah, I mean, will it work in the favor of indies if it means that some like bigger budget movies will be moved into that category, leaving room for indies and like best picture and best director. I don't know if that's how it works. You wonder if there's like a budget cap or a box office gross cap and things like that. It sounds, that that was really caught me off guard um, as well as, I'm all for a shorter ceremony, but it's gonna be Oscar parties now. When you have your ballots with your friends and it's like, oh, who's in first place? They're happening during the commercial breaks now. It's like, come on. Have I got a sound sound mixing? I gotta watch sound mixing. I feel like the internet could help. I've never heard of that. Well, just imagine like not being able to see Roger Deakins win his first Oscar. Imagine. God, yeah. I mean, I would hope cinematography wouldn't be considered like a minor category, but I guess we will soon see. So, sorry, live action. And also, short. it's like they're gonna keep <laughs> they're gonna keep all those shitty songs and like dance routines that yeah. last that are drawn out way too long that none of us care about. I except- feel like a large percentage of the Oscar watching audience cares about that. Like I don't know. A, like an older Probably. Crowd. I mean, there's always like 20 montages of film history or romance at the movies. And Maybe they'll just cut out lame-ass skits. I really hope they cut out skits. I think they're going to put Best Picture at during a commercial break. <laughs> it's like, sorry guys, good night. I, I just wanted to add also uh, a quick update on some stories that we covered last week. First off, Movie Pass. Three movies a month now. Uh, I don't know. I think it's I think it's 
really it's nearing the end. Bad. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it keeps every week. I feel like it's nearing the end and getting closer and closer. I yeah. mean, we've been reporting that for months. I guess yeah. we'll see. Well, we talked about how AMC's A list is already was already kind of a better deal, um, and now that you know they allow three movies a week uh, for ten dollars more, you can see, um, I guess, like eighteen more movies. No, three a week, twelve so more 12. movies. Uh, or nine, nine more movies. Nine, nine, nine more wow. movies. Wow, math. Um, it just is looking like AMC is gonna, you know, walk away with yeah. this one. I can't wait till next week where Movie Pass announces that you can watch half a movie <laughs> once a year. <laughs> AMC, I wouldn't want to be a. Oh God. James Gunn uh, has not been rehired for Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, and in fact, uh, it was reported this morning that. Disney will also be ditching his script. Um, so they're going to rewrite the entire thing and it'll be completely James Gunless, um, which is more unfortunate news, I guess, um, depending on how you look at the situation. Uh, it's We're never going to see James Gunn's uh, final chapter to the franchise that he sort of created. Um, yeah, I guess it would have been, no pun intended, but Disney sticking to their guns uh, because <laughs> if they were to ditch him as director but keep his screenplay I mean then that would have sound seemed very hypocritical yeah. strange right if they don't want to be associated with him at all anymore then to have kept his script would have screamed strange and maybe that was part of the negotiations like maybe he said you know I, okay if, if you don't want me to direct it but you can't have my script Dave Batista also came out and said he wouldn't be in the new Guardians of the Galaxy unless James Gunn was rehired. Uh, Dave Bautista plays Drax, who's arguably the best character in Guardians of Galaxy. Uh, Guardians of Galaxy. Guardians of the Galaxy. But I think he, he said he's contractually obligated, Yeah, I right? think he'll probably so, have to do it. Yeah. That's Dave Bautista's star of Bushwick, by the way. Yes, yeah. Bushwick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last update is that I saw Mission Impossible 6 on the IMAX, and it was awesome. So that ends my Mission Impossible saga for this summer. Until next summer. Yes. If you choose to accept it. So our friend Charles Hain is still out in the field working on his web series. Uh, so you'll have to bear with us for a little bit of gear news this week. But there's some cool stuff on deck. So starting out, we, uh, as you probably know, are big fans of Road over here on the show. We got the whole studio gussed up with Road broadcaster mics. And when we're out on the road, we always use their reporter mics mixed with our F8 which is a a compact setup that really helps us get the job done for festival interviews and podcasts. This might sound like uh, an ad, but we really mean it. It's not an ad. So now the company has announced an ultra-compact all-in-one mobile interview kit. It's made up of one SC6L input-output breakout box specifically designed for Apple iOS devices, including both smartphones and tablets, two SmartLav Plus lav mics, clips, windshields, and many other desirable add-ons that not only allow you to conduct your run-and-gun interviews more effortlessly, but are also capable of producing broadcast-quality sound. The SmartLav Plus is a 4.5mm omnidirectional mini lav mic with Kevlar-reinforced cables that was designed specifically for use with Apple mobile devices, as I said, the idea being that those who are recording on the go usually use their smartphones to do so. The second piece to the kit is the SC6L, which is harder to say than you might imagine. This little device is an input-output breakout box that allows you to connect directly to iOS devices via a lightning connection, which is the main difference between it and the original SC6. 
built with two TRS inputs and one stereo headphone output for monitoring. The SC6L connects to any TRS device. To make recording easier, the kit's optimized to be used with the Rode Reporter app, which allows you to monitor directly customized settings according to your specific needs and record uncompressed or compressed formats. And if you're intrigued by the idea of having a mobile recording setup on your smartphone but wish there was a wireless version, Sennheiser's memory mic may be more your speed. We first caught wind of this exciting product back at NAB, and we thought when it was finally announced it would be huge. So here's how it works. After downloading this free memory mic app from Sennheiser, you can connect the mic to your phone via Bluetooth, Once you start recording on the memory mic, you no longer need to stay in Bluetooth range. Its internal storage records and stores up to four hours of 16-bit, 48 kilohertz audio. When you've stopped recording, the app can sync the audio and video via Bluetooth. The app also allows you to adjust the sensitivity of the memory mic at three different levels for softer and louder audio. Since the memory mic does not use an input on the phone, you can simultaneously record the phone audio, which can be mixed later on, which is like a very cool feature uh we've had a few times where our mics have dropped out or haven't worked for some reason so to have that extra layer of protection in terms of losing audio is a really nice feature so that mic is attached to whoever via magnetic clip and features an omnidirectional condenser capsule with a good frequency response for voices at 100 to 20,000 hertz Its battery can be recharged via USB port and gives you about four hours of operating time. And the price is set at 200 bucks. One thing to consider, however, is that the mic is pretty obvious on camera. Um, It's pretty big, and I think it's also white, uh, so it sticks out. Um, So its size may not be ideal for your project. I think it's more for vloggers and people who aren't too concerned with that. But you can head to the site to get a better look for yourself. And our last piece of gear news is that Tamron is releasing a new 17 to 35 millimeter full frame lens, and it's a ultra wide zoom. So you might remember that Tamron's SP 15 30 millimeter uh, was released in 2015. It has an excellent wide angle lens with good contrast, clarity, and color, touting a price tag of around $1,100. But the company has now released a new wide angle zoom full frame lens, the 17 35 millimeter at half the cost. It's going to be available in Nikon mount this September and Canon later on. It's three and a half inches in length and weighs about 16.2 ounces, so it's small and it's light for space conscious shooters. And while the SP counterpart provides two more millimeters in the wide angle, you're getting an extra five millimeters in focal length on the telephoto side, while also keeping the f2.8 to f4 aperture range. What's really nice about the lens is its 11-inch minimum focusing distance allows filmmakers to take advantage of doing sort of interior car work or close-ups. And its street price, of course, is probably its best feature. It's half the price of that SP lens at $599. It will be interesting to see how this lens stacks up with, uh, with that counterpart. And we're also turning to you, Mr. John Fusco, for this week's Ask No Film School question. We got this one from the boards on No Film School, where Trey Dukes asked, I have just completed the rough draft for about a 45-minute short film. Where can I find someone with experience to examine it, and how much will that cost? Trey Dukes. Well, Trey, as someone who is just (laughs) finishing up their first short, I thought I'd take on this question. So uh, let me first start off by addressing the length of your film. 
uh, which, as Liz said, is a 45-minute short film. Now, this all depends on what your eventual goal is with the film, but if you're looking to enter it into festivals, and I kind of assume you are, this is way too long. Um, and it's not just a... That's not just like a subjective uh, opinion. That's that's a fact. Uh, many festivals, such as South by Southwest, actually define a short film as under 40 minutes long, and they won't accept a film that's even a second longer in that shorts category because they're worried that, you know, feature filmmakers may be trying to slip into the shorts film category because it's a little bit less competitive. Um, so at this state, you're not going to be even able to submit it, which means you'll either need to chop it down or extend it into a feature. If you do indeed decide to chop it down, then be prepared to make some really big cuts. Most industry experts and programmers that I've talked to recommend that your short be somewhere in the 15-minute range, and very few films with a runtime of over 25 minutes get selected into a program. Because you have to take into account the job of the programmer, who must select a number of films to fill what is more or less a one and a half hour block to screen shorts back to back, because that's how they're presented in the film festival. So for example, within the runtime of one 45 minute short film, they could choose to program three films from other emerging directors, and it just makes sense that they do that. Honestly, if I were you, I might just try expanding what you have already written into a feature. Uh, you're probably not that far, and it's probably easier than shaving off like 30 minutes. So when I made my short, the shooting script was only 13 pages, but the first cut ended up being 26 minutes long. So it's possible that what you've written may actually translate already into much more than just the tried-and-true minute-a-page rule. Because unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, that tried-and-true rule is not as true as one would think. It could turn out what you think is a 45-minute movie is actually an hour and a half long already. Now, to address the main part of your question. Judging on what you decide to do, extend or shorten, you have a couple of options in terms of proofreading. If you decide to shorten it, I would definitely first rack the resources of people you have available to you. Do you know anyone who has written a film before? Do you have a friend who is an editor or a journalist? Maybe there's a family member who may have a better grasp on language or grammar. Giving someone you trust a 15-page script to handle is a lot more reasonable than asking them to seriously sit down and fuss over a 45-page script. If you decide to extend it or rack your brain and you can't think of anyone, there are also a number of script doctor services available online that you can submit to, like wescreenplay.com. Just do a Google search for these services because they definitely do exist. And there are even freelancers that you could find to do it for you. Um, so I'd say that it would probably cost somewhere in the range of $75 to $200, uh, depending on what you do end up looking for. Uh, the shorts obviously will cost less. If it's a feature, it'll cost more. One more note is that grammar oftentimes isn't even as important as the way the script is formatted itself. So if you're looking to attract buyers or potential investors, it's important that it reads well, that you properly build up a world that makes your vision abundantly clear. And there are certain strategies you may want to try out to do that. You can check out an article called Understanding the Formatting of a Screenplay and Why It All Matters on the site. Yeah, I'll also add that it might be helpful, if you haven't done this already, to just look at some professional scripts and see how yours matches up formatting-wise. We have tons of those on nofilmschool.com. Every year we post a bunch of the Oscar-nominated scripts, so we'll link to some of those in the podcast post. And also, I hope that you're using some sort of industry standard software to write your script because that sort of automatically puts things in the right format, like Final Draft, 
And Final Draft has on its website uh, a section called Learn where they, they give a lot of tips about how to format your screenplay correctly and what you might be doing wrong and common pitfalls and how to use their software. So there's lots of good free resources out there for you. Final Draft is pretty expensive. That's the only thing. So there are a number of Final Draft clones that pretty much do the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, that just, I guess, aren't the quote-unquote industry standard. Um, there's Celtex. Um, Writer Duet is really good. Uh, those basically will do all the formatting for you. It's just a matter of how you use that formatting. Awesome. So uh, thanks for the question, Trey, and good luck, Trey Dukes. We look forward to your movie. And now on to some movies that are opening this week. On Hulu, you can check out a movie called Baskin, it's coming out on August 9th. Here's a midnight film to check out if you've got a hankering for the midnight genre. I first heard about it at Brooklyn Horror Fest a few years ago, and I never got a chance to see it, but I'll definitely check it out now. Uh, Baskin is about a squad of unsuspecting cops who go through a trap door to hell when they stumble upon a black mass in an abandoned building. It's directed by a Turkish filmmaker named Can Evernal, who also directed one of the best shorts in the feature anthology I saw at South by Southwest this year, named The Field Guide to Evil. You can read an interview I did with some of the directors of that film on the site. It's called From Enthusiasm Comes Magic, The Field Guide to Evil Binds Dark Folklore from Across the World. Evernal also won the Best New Director Award for Baskin at Fantastic Fest back in 2015. So, you know what I'm going to say, right? No. Something about how, like, if you want to bask in horror, you might enjoy this Ooh. film. Good. Mm. I like how they're unsuspecting cops who go through a trap door to hell. Because yeah. if they are <laughs> suspecting cops that choose that route, I mean, they deserve what they get. <laughs> Premiering on August 10th is Borg versus McEnroe from Danish filmmaker Janusz Metz, who made his feature debut with the acclaimed 2010 doc Armadillo, and he made his narrative debut with this film, which premiered at TIFF back in 2017. Borg McEnroe is, of course, based on a real-life, world-famous rivalry that changed the world of tennis in the 1980s, and according to Metz, it doesn't make sense to make a sports movie unless you have a story. And while the tennis had to sell, quote-unquote, on screen, as a director, he approached the film as a psychological thriller. Um, That sounds pretty intriguing. The film stars Shia LaBeouf as John McEnroe and Swedish actor Sverre Gudnesson as Bjorn Borg. If you want to read more about the film, check out an article on the site from Justin Morrow, Transforming the Great Tennis Rivalry into a Psychological Thriller. The first episode of this series we're going to mention premiered on HBO last week. Episode 2 and the remaining episodes will be premiering for the next couple of Friday nights. Technically Saturday mornings because it's on uh, the bewitching hour of midnight. I'm speaking of Terrence Nance's Random Acts of Flyness, which premiered last Friday with a first episode that was equally haunting and hilarious, urgent, and yet placed in a horrific historical context. Uh, Terrence has been covered several times here at No Film School, first making waves with his debut feature in Oversimplification of Her Beauty, which is a few years ago, before founding his own production company, making other art-focused projects, and now this gleefully provocative new series. Uh, it's part anthology series, part sketch, non sequitur. Uh, Nance's creation is both singular in that it's about the sociologically racist perception of black America as viewed through a white gaze and stringently all-encompassing, that the de-emphasizing of a white narrative as means to handing the perception of African Americans back to the African Americans. So that, for example, one topic is they have a fake talk show where they discuss why um, 
bisexual African-American males are not represented in media often and, and what that means. And then they kind of take a comic, uh, not stance, but it's it's not deadly serious, but it takes on some very heavy issues. Uh, it's also extremely inventive, finding a way to incorporate multiple directorial voices into a cohesive presentation that's both schizophrenic and yet it's very narratively sustained. Um, a project of collaboration, the first episode is an excellent example of filmmakers using their own styles to complement a singular vision. And and even John Hamm shows up in it uh, as someone using a product called White Be Gone, which is supposed to help with wokeness. Uh, so it's actually a very good performance. It is a funny cameo. And uh, Scout DeFoya actually interviewed Terrence at the Black Star Festival in Philly last week. And episode two of Random Acts airs this Friday night slash Saturday morning at midnight. So the first episode is online and is on our site. Check it out. And then, you know, you'll be up to date for episode two. And we'll link to Scout's interview with Terrence Nance in the podcast post. I'm so psyched for this series. It just sounds like such a head trip and so many talented people are involved. It's awesome. And as you've probably gathered from John's earlier movies, several of the films from this past year's festival circuit are hitting theaters and streaming. One that made a big impression on me at Sundance is Josephine Decker's Madeline's Madeline. Decker's one of my favorite modern filmmakers. She's actually been on one of our most popular podcast episodes, How Do You Know Whether Your Film Is Porn or Art?, I like her because she totally fucks with form, and this film is no different. You really don't know half the time what's real and who's quote-unquote right or wrong, which is, let's face it, a lot like life. The intense drama centers around teenager Madeline, played by Helena Howard, who is definitely a strong new talent to watch. She, uh, Her character is bright and captivating, but suffers from sort of an unspecified mental illness that contributes to a roller coaster relationship with her well-meaning mother, played by indie favorite Miranda July. Now, a third woman, Evangeline, played by Molly Parker, is a theater director who casts Madeline in her devised Art Imitates Life play that ends up using Madeline's life for inspiration and maybe hits a little too close to home. The really interesting part about all this is that it's very meta in that Decker was studying theater while she was making the film, and its script is also devised from an insane eight-month workshopping process. So we spoke at Sundance about two weeks after the final film was finished, so it was all very fresh, and the insights she shares about her process are pretty amazing. I'll link to that interview as well. And also coming out on August 10th is a film called Summer of 84. I saw this little genre film back at Sundance earlier in the year, and it's a good one for fans of Stranger Things and 80 slashes to check out. It's from the trio of directors who brought Turbo Kid to the big screen, Francois Simard, Anouk Wassel, and Yon Carl Wassel. They're Canadian. I think it's easy to call them pioneers of the 80s revival, which, as I said, is a movement seemingly spurred by the success of Stranger Things. Many movies of the revival deal with similar themes. You can usually bet that a group of suburban children will encounter some sort of supernatural force, then band together to defeat it. Summer of 84 puts a spin on that trend, keeping many of the stand-by-me vibes but committing to an antagonist who's more grounded in reality. In the film, a group of kids begin to suspect that their neighbor is, in fact, a serial killer. As a result, the kids spend their summer gathering clues and spying on him to prove he's responsible for the death of several other teens in the neighborhood. You can listen to a podcast I did with the three directors called How to Use Trends in Filmmaking to Your Advantage on whatever uh, you're using to listen to this podcast to now, or you can check it out on the site. Another film that I saw at a festival this year at South by Southwest specifically is a film called Elizabeth Harvest, and that's coming out on August 10th. It's a modern retelling of the classic French fairy tale of Bluebeard, and I'll use director Sebastian Gutierrez's own words to describe what the fairy tale is about. 
The basic story, he explains, is that a rich nobleman, widower, marries a young virginal wife, brings her out to his castle, and showers her with gifts. He has a ring of keys and says, You can go in all these rooms, and all of this is yours, except for this one room that you can't go into. A couple of days later, Curiosity gets the best of her. She goes into the room where she finds he has murdered his six previous wives. And depending on the version of the tale, she is saved by a prince or she's saved by her brother. The entire premise of the story rests on the villain being treated almost in a matter-of-fact way, of him saying, I'm sorry I have to kill you, but you have broken my trust. Therefore, you must die. Gutierrez updates the story to be a modern horror in which a genetic scientist keeps clones of his wife, instead of corpses, frozen in his secret room. Every time a new clone version of his wife enters the room against his wishes, the scientist is forced to kill her. But it's also got a feminist twist to it, so don't worry, Liz. It's not all about husbands killing so they're clone wise. So he still he makes clones now, but he still kills the clones. He kills the clones. So why clone them? What does he do with the, like? Because he's trying to find the one clone. Oh, he's just cloning one person over and over and yes. over again, and keeps killing. The yeah, others. his oh, wife. Oh, so that's that's only twenty five to fifty years. I mean, I'm just taking it especially personally because like it's an Elizabeth harvest, harvest, like a oh, harvest of Elizabeths. That's true. Like, does some dude have a room full of me somewhere? Listen, Liz, I'm sorry, I have to kill you, but you have broken my trust. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, you must die. Wow. So the film stars Abby Lee, Carlo Gugino, Sierran Hines, and Dylan Baker. You can read my whole interview from South by Southwest with Lee, Gugino, and Gutierrez on the site titled, You Have to Think on Your Toes, The Nightmarish Adaptation Behind Elizabeth Harvest. Some really good movies coming out. And we've also got some good upcoming deadlines for you. On August 13th, if you're prepping a feature film, then you can apply to be part of the Film Independent Directing Lab, an eight-week lab in L.A. that'll help you get ready. Under the guidance of established industry pros who serve as creative advisors, Directing Lab fellows receive script feedback, discuss their visions, and select short scenes from their screenplays to workshop. Each director then casts actors and rehearses their scenes in the lab before undertaking a mini-production. Sounds awesome. Film Independent provides fellows with the digital camera, lighting, and sound packages, and small stipends to shoot their scenes, and offers access to experienced casting directors, cinematographers, and editors with whom to collaborate and consult. The process creates an opportunity to see the work through from pre- to post-production and culminates in a group screening for fellow lab participants and advisors. And also with the deadline of August 13th is Film Independence Project Involve. Uh, you could be a part of this lab that runs from January through September to get access to mentoring, workshops, and networking events. Project Involve is a free, intensive, nine-month annual program that offers 30 up-and-coming film professionals from underrepresented communities the opportunity to hone skills, form creative partnerships, utilize free or low-cost production resources, and ultimately gain the industry access necessary to succeed as working artists. Uh, one of those shorts was uh, Emergency, which I saw at South by Southwest, which won the best short at South by, was a project in Film Independence Project Involve. And that was very, very well done. For some festival deadlines, uh, with August 10th being the extended and final deadline, is the Philadelphia Film Festival, which takes place from October 18th through the 28th, featuring screenings of international and domestic and local films, retrospective tributes, forums and panels, and receptions. The festival consists of approximately 100 films on up to seven screens over its 11 days. Philadelphia Film Festival was named one of 2016's top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee by Movie Maker Magazine. It's Mom. Remember we made Oh, the, right. Mom. The we said Mom. Mom. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> it was ranked by Mom as one of the top 50 film festivals. 
Yep. Also with a deadline of August 10th is the Crossroads Film Festival. Now, no, this is not a festival where they just play the Britney Spears 2002 film Crossroads. Oh, forget it. I'm not wow. going. I'm impressed you know the year that oh, that yeah. came out. <laughs> One of Dan Aykroyd's best supporting performances. Oh. He's wow. like our resident trivia guy. He is. Yeah, 16 years ago since Crossroads. We should have a uh, anniversary night. Yeah, we not, can call it Oops, We Did It Again. I met, Imagine the song. I remember not yet. I'm a girl, not yet a woman. <laughs> well, now she's a woman. Okay. This is the early bird deadline, August 10th. It takes place in Jackson, Mississippi, which is where Britney Spears is from, Mississippi, from April 11th through the 13th, 2019. Wait. I'm, like, starting to get that you're, like, a big Britney Spears fan. Um, you know. <laughs> Wow. You don't know all the pieces of me. Since Aww. 2000, the Crossroads Film Society has hosted the annual Crossroads Film Festival, where 75 to 100 of the best and most innovative international, U.S., Southern, and Mississippi independent films are exhibited. And there will, of course, be cash prizes, Southern celebrities, you know who, <laughs> workshops, daily receptions, and nightly juking with live music. Juking. <laughs> juking, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay. I've got Jukin all over the place. <laughs> and on August 15th, the late deadline for the Leuven International Short Film Festival takes place. This festival takes place from December 1st to the 8th in the beautiful medieval city of Leuven, Belgium. It is an Academy Award and BAFTA qualifying festival. The festival screens more than 200 short films from all over the world, divided into more than 25 different categories. Awards include 10,000 euro kit packages and range from 1,000 to 2,000 euro cash prizes. So pretty good stuff here. And that's a lot of short films. 200. Sundance picks like 69. So So Trey Dukes, listen up. Trey Dukes. Can you imagine how many of these screens to whittle it down to 200? And now, what you've all been waiting for. Weekly words of wisdom. 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 <laughs> Cinematographer Loretta Prevost did some coverage this week from one of my favorite festivals, the Sheffield Doc Fest in England. And one piece was from a panel with two doc filmmakers, Ramel Ross of Hale County this morning, this evening, who you interviewed, right, Eric? I did, yeah, Sunday. Yeah. It's very good. And uh, Maceo Frost of Too Beautiful, Our Right to Fight, who were both at the festival with their films. It was a really insightful discussion about how they shot these films and how they decided which tools to use. And Ross in particular, I don't know if you found this when you interviewed him, but he seemed to have like a very philosophical approach to shooting. And even though it's fallen out of favor in some ways, he had a reason for shooting with the Canon 5D Mark III. He said... Quote, the Mark III allows you to attach the camera to your body and it becomes an extension of your eye and to a greater, more fluid sense, an extension of consciousness. If you don't have a big rig and you can keep the camera really small, keep the mic small and the lens small, and you really practice using the camera as an extension of your eye, then you're able to sort of cross a boundary from pointing at things to sort of ingesting them and observing them in a way which you more naturally would. So... I know that sometimes shooters use the camera as a way to put distance or objectivity between themselves and a subject, and Ross took the opposite approach here, which I thought was really interesting. The article has a lot more gems like that, so I recommend checking it out on nofilmschool.com. And it's time for our shout-outs. Woo! Liz's shout-outs. Shout-out, shout-out, shout-out. shout-outs, where she shouts yeah. out her friends. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I think this is the best thing that's ever happened on this podcast. Thank it's you like guys. a game show You made me really happy. Um, so, first shout out goes to me. <laughs> oh, we take the song back. <laughs> no, mean... it's not. It's not. It's not 
typical that I would do this, but it is that time of year again that uh, the South by Southwest panel picker is open, so you can vote for your favorite panels. Check it out. There are a lot of great contenders, but I will put in a bid for you to vote for one that I was asked to be on. I'm really excited about. I think it'll be helpful to a lot of you. It's called Make Your Own Damn Movie slash Web Series slash VR Experience. So, yeah, I was asked to to be on this panel with Lloyd Kaufman of uh, Famous Troma Entertainment, who we've had here on the podcast, actually, uh, two-time South by Southwest Audience Choice Award winner, director Trent Haga, and the co-founder of KitSplit, Lisbeth Kaufman, who also happens to be Lloyd Kaufman's daughter. So it's a really, like interesting panel with a diverse set of experiences about how to get your movie kind of made from from soup to nuts and i think it's going to be super super like entertaining and helpful so please head over to panel picker it takes like two seconds and just give us an upvote because that's how uh the panels are ultimately chosen for south by southwest is it too late to submit a panel idea because I'm thinking of a couple right now. It's not too late for oh, next year. Oh, for next year. Oh, for next no, year. For, for, no, for next next Perfect. year. So, oh, for 2020. It's not too late for 2020. Oh, okay. But the Oscars organizers are thinking about 2020. <laughs> exactly. So, yes, they yeah. are. You'll put on my panel during a commercial break. And I've got one more, too. I'm really excited about this one. Um, our friend Maxine Trump, unfortunate last name, but she actually made a really funny short during the election called Trump's Against Trump. Anyway, <laughs> documentary filmmaker Maxine Trump, who lives here in New York, um, and who is a member of of the Film Shop, which we've also talked about on the show, just came out with a book, an actual book that you can hold in your hands called The Documentary Filmmaker's Roadmap, A Practical Guide to Planning, Production, and Distribution. I think it's going to be really good. I previewed it a little bit. I actually think I'm, I'm like quoted on the cover, you know, with one of those little endorsements, which is kind of fun. It I says, haven't seen it yet. I actually think it's pretty good. I've seen a little of it. That's the <laughs> yes, quote on the poster. It says, this is a book. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can hold it in your hands. <laughs> anyway, uh, Maxine's smart and talented, and I think this is the kind of guide book that, you know, most documentary filmmakers are going to get a lot out of. So I think it's it's on Amazon and all the places you can buy books. So check it out. Documentary Filmmakers Roadmap, a practical guide to planning, production, and distribution. And on Monday, you can hear another interview podcast as always. And it's a this one is a pretty solid follow-up to last Monday's podcast, which if you haven't gotten a chance to check out, you definitely should. Um, it's gotten a pretty nice reception. That one was called How to Shoot a Feature Film for Only $7,000. And this Monday's, or I guess this upcoming Monday's, is going to be called How to Shoot a Short Film for Only $4.50. That's right. That's $4.50. That's insane. I sat down with writer-actor Tony Grayson, who has a crazy story about how he moved out of NYC back home to Chicago and shot a short for only the price of a train ticket that ended up getting into South by Southwest. It's the kind of story we love around here. I can't wait to hear it. In the meantime, guys, please, uh, in order to hear that podcast and all of our future episodes, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast on your favorite app. If you happen to use iTunes um, and the Apple Store, please consider giving us a healthy rating. They really help other people find the podcast and, and kind of help us keep going. So um, we appreciate it. And of course, as always, please stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Eric Lures. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Shout out. Woo, jukin. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we are all at No Film School and, of course, at nofilmschool.com. And we'll see you next week. Ciao.